Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Kenneth Couquier to discuss his new book, Framers Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil. His co-authors are Victor Meyer Schoenberger, who he wrote a previous and very, very uh, well-known book called Big Data, and a new member of their team, Francis de Vericourt. Thanks for joining me today, Ken. Absolutely. Great to be here. So, uh, Ken, I'm quite curious. You've got the new book. How does it relate to Big Data? And more importantly, at the essence, what inspired you to write this on planet Earth at this time? It's such a good question. And you're right to actually point to the earlier book, Big Data. It wouldn't be so obvious, I think, for a lot of people to realize that here there's a book about cognitive psychology, a book about liberalism, a book about business and business strategy, and that it relates to an earlier book about data. But it certainly does. And the reason why is that when Big Data came out in 2013 and it hit the New York Times bestseller list, which was brilliant, we were very honored that it did, and it made a nice contribution to how people thought about machine learning and artificial intelligence, because of course big data is sort of, sort of shorthand in the valley for machine learning, and it certainly was at the time. We were, we were sort of brandished the evangelists of AI and the evangelists of big data and the cheerleaders of it. And I willingly accepted that title because I felt that there was so much about artificial intelligence to cheer. And I still do think that way. But we were unfairly tarnished as well. And we were unfairly tarnished because people said, well, these guys are just talking about correlations and giving up on causality. And they have this view that, that you can just trust the data and that's enough. But of course, you need a model for data and that, that model is really important. And you can't just trust correlations and give up on causality. And we said, we met them halfway, if you will. Uh, we do feel that we're in a world, particularly, and machine learning validates this, that the correlations in often is good enough, although, of course, causality is still the gold standard. But be that as it may, we always presumed that the data would exist in a model. We never thought that they wouldn't, and people sort of ascribed and sort of slung arrows at us in that way. So to fast forward, we were listening to the criticisms, but at the same time, we were watching what was going on in terms of artificial intelligence just take off uh, like rapeseed uh, and get improvements that, we, that, that were, were faster than anyone had ever thought was going to be possible and be adopted more commonly than we thought was going to be even quicker. And we were the optimists of it. Well, at the same time, we saw populism and creeping authoritarianism and even, even a winnowing of the public sphere because of cancel culture. And we were nervous about both of these trends melding together, where we have AI sort of being, being endowed with too much authority, too much power, and the human being diminished. And we said, me and Victor and Francis as well, said, no, 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 no. Before there's a model, there's a mental model. And so we need to actually focus not on what humans do poorly, like Daniel Kahneman and cognitive biases. We need to focus on what humans do really, really well, which is they have generate mental models, they apply mental models, they think of the world with a simulation in mind, and then by doing so, and if they're good at it, they can actually change the world so it bends towards their will. And we should celebrate this, and we need to get better at it if we're going to tackle our biggest challenges. So from that sort of seedling of big data and the success of it, we focused our minds on taking the story to its next increment, which isn't, if you will, AI. We take as given that AI will be as transformative and positive as we believe it to be and as, as it will be. But we say, no, 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 the, the point is not to focus on the AI. The point is to double down on human beings and get better at that. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, uh, many of the, I'll be a little bit uh, technical, but many of the philosophers who I talk to about economics and economic history, economic history of thought and, uh, and dynamics, talk about epistemological or ontological uncertainty. Ontological mean there are unknown unknowns both in the realm of outcomes and in the realm 
of probability assignment, whereas the epistemologists, I, I'm using a silly metaphor, but God can see the model, but it's just too complex, and all we need is more computing power, and then it will come into focus. And my sense is there's some ontological uncertainty present. Uh, you know, we have gone through this over the years in macroeconomics, rational expectations, somehow pretends that past is prologue. I have a lot of friends in the insurance industry, and they say climate change is scary because we don't have actuarial tables about what this looks like. So we got to evolve the model by learning. And uh... That's exactly right. Let me pick up on that because it's just so essential. People in the climate change uh, environment look at the data and they say, hey, uh, climate change is happening. Look, the, the, the temperature is rising. But then there's people, statisticians often, who actually know something about data. They look at it and, they, and they're the naysayers and they're the climate change deniers. And they say, they look at it and they say, the data just doesn't do what you say it does. Just because it's going up doesn't mean it's not going to go down. Um, their model is different. So how do you square these two things? And the, and the, the dirty little secret in the biz is that the, the pure statistician approach isn't incorrect. It is true that if you simply look at rising temperatures as your data point, that does not actually tell you anything about causality, and it doesn't tell you that humans were responsible for that. But what you need is a model, and what you need in particular is a counterfactual. And so actually in our book, we open up a chapter on counterfactuals by talking about two incredible women, right? And it's relevant, <laughs> interestingly, it should be women, right? Eunice Foote, who has been really forgotten in history as the woman who, before John Tydale of the Royal Society, was the scientist who made the link, the causal link between, excuse me, the, it was, yeah, pure causality link here of carbonic gas, carbon dioxide, and rising atmospheric temperatures that when you, the sun rays hits it, that actually it gets hotter than with natural air and it takes a longer time to cool down. So it's a great win there that you can actually see the mechanism that if you have European factories that are belching out factory smoke in the dark satanic mills that yes, in fact, you're, if you increase the carbonic acid content of atmospheric air, Earth is going to heat up at some point. Okay. Now what then happened is the baton got, got, oh, I should give a date for that, that's 1850s. Okay, so the baton gets passed in the 1980s to Ines Fung at Berkeley and MI, previously MIT who was working for NASA under Jim Henson, right? The fellow who came up with the famous testimony, right, before Congress that basically said there is such a thing as climate change and every scenario from, from middling to okay to dire is bad and all of them are bad, all the scenarios are bad. But what she did is she applied the counterfactual to say what if you have Earth without humans and if you have Earth with humans, what is the difference of the natural rate of atmospheric temperature change? And when you do it that way, of course, you cannot run the experiment because there's only one Earth. You need to run a counterfactual model. You need to create a simulation of it. And that idea of the counterfactual is what's so important. And so one of the features of a mental model or a frame, as we call it in the book, is not only is counterfactuals. It's not only causality, it's not only counterfactuals, it's also constraints. But here we can focus on just the role of counterfactuals, and that's how you get. You need the mental model to understand climate change and to identify the role of humans as responsible for climate change. Yeah. When I uh, used to work as a financial investor, I often would teach at schools or give lectures at schools, and I had a metaphor that I use, which is the only thing you can observe is the price. But behind it, there is a pendulum that swings back and forth, the ball, and there's a fulcrum. But the only thing you see is the ball. And as an investor, you've got to figure out, is this mean reverting? Meaning when the pendulum swings out, it will return back to the balance point. Or is the fulcrum drifting from structural change? So when you see it out there, if you take what you might call the other side for the return to balance, you're going to get rolled over. So you had to get into the structural dynamics, the instability of models, in order to draw proper inference about what's taking place. And uh, it's it's just, a, I, I try to make a simple metaphor that people could, you might say, latch onto 
the, the dimensionalities that were in play. And uh, you're, you've taken it to a much more sophisticated place than I would be able to, both as a seer and as a writer. But, but I thought that kind of uh, window kind of creates a bridge into the, the kind of things you're working for, to illuminate. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, I, that's, of course, behind INET in general as an institution in which it understands that the world is more complex than we think, it's more adaptive than we think, that there's an inherent instability that we think. And we make this point in the book as well. In fact, one of the more delightful uh, vignettes that we point to is Andrew Lowe's work, Andrew Lowe of MIT, uh, the economist, who exactly who is who's trying to reframe, if you will, economics away from the mental model of 19th century physics of a world of fluid dynamics and equilibrium to a world of biology, which focuses on a mental model of evolution and growth and change. And when you do that, suddenly what it means is that we're not, we're, as economists or as uh, financiers or as even business people or people acting agents in, in the world, we're not looking at an entity that has these sort of static rules of which we're trying to divine what they are and then apply them that the actual environment that we're in, that we're living in, itself is unstable, itself is changing and dynamic, and therefore everything we learn and then when we make an action changes the underlying environment and state that it's in, and we need to learn and change again. Now, if you take that mental model of sort of not stock but flow, for, for so to speak, when it comes to thinking about the economy, and then apply it to business, you can see that one reason why some businesses do incredibly well and others less well are those businesses that are understanding and have as their mental model the inherent change of the environment that they're operating in, where there's constant cycles of turnaround and that what they did yesterday has not zero, but almost zero validity for today. A lot of companies that don't operate on that speed, on that clock, if you will, are going to fail, or even if they try to, they don't make those right decisions. Now, places like Amazon and others who are able to collect data and have a data advantage are ostensibly better off to actually learn faster, can also hopefully have the right sort of environment, business environment, that if they make a mistake, they can respond and rebound more quickly and better to actually course correct, shape shift, meet the market where it is, and succeed. But it's not a given because before it's a strategy, it has to be a mental model. And it, it's hard for it to be something that you just simply read about in a book and learn. It's got to be sort of in your DNA. You've got to be like, it's got to be baked in rather than sprinkled on top. I had a wonderful conversation yesterday that resonates with the kind of things you're talking about. He's a gentleman who works at a bond rating agency. And he's talking to me about the ESG, Economy, Society, Governance agenda, the broader stakeholder awareness. But he was talking about the change in perceptions. In the, he was talking about in the United States in this instance, related to race. And he said that, for instance, black colleges get much lower ratings by the ratings agency than white colleges, even when their finances are stronger. And he was going through all of these things. But I, I said to him, how do you inspire change? And he said, in an ESG world, what I tell them is there will be about 50 lawsuits waiting to be heard. And if you invest in municipal bonds with schools or groups or whatever, that get triggered from major losses. A precedent is set. The sense of what society's responsibility changes to be more inclusive of people of color. You're going to get tagged. Your, your municipal bond is going to crash. So he's saying you don't have to be either a racist or someone who's a, you know working for civil rights and, and inclusion. What you have to be in my business is a guy who sees it's going to change and it's not priced in, and I'm trying to tell you where the risk is. And so I thought it was a fascinating analogy that he's saying the underlying sense of values in a society post-George Floyd's murder is changing. What is going to constitute safety in a bond rating is going to change because the challenges that are going to come up from this new consciousness will change what you might call the scorecard or the probabilities around different municipal bond environments. 
Yeah, I think that's 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 very interesting, and it's interesting that sort of a a a Bond guy is is seeing that and seeing that early, and of course they think about risk, and they of course it's it's in some ways interestingly not surprising that it would be spotted by someone there. In our book, we talk about this because we talk about the value of pluralism, and we talk about uh, diversity as well, in particular cognitive diversity. And if you don't know if someone is cognitively diverse and brings you a different way of seeing the world, one sort of proxy of that is the outward manifestation of diversity and all of its other manifestations of skin color and gender and sexual orientation and nationality, etc., etc. Age certainly is another one as well. So one of the nice things that we were able to study was the sociology around race relations in America, and in particular the idea that white middle-class families tell their children that they should be colorblind. And that seems like the right approach. In fact, Martin Luther King's famous speech invoked this idea that we should be colorblind and not see color. And it shouldn't matter the, the, the color of a man's skin, but the, the, the content of his character. Beautiful. But the new thinking by, by African-American sociologists is to say, no, 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 don't try to be colorblind. If you do that, you, you erase something fundamental about the other. In particular, it almost erases away uh, uh, a part of their lived experience which is so different than yours that it actually does uh, some sort of injustice to actually put the pretense of colorblindness out when in fact that can't be correct because of course there's implicit racism in all the ways in which we see and don't see you know throughout the interactions that we have and of course the George Floyd murders brought to the fore this sort of emotional awakening of some of those problems instead what they see what they say is don't try to be colorblind be colorful see the difference go to the difference in fact in fact it's actually harder to do that it's much harder because it makes you feel uncomfortable good let it make you feel uncomfortable but 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 take that step forward and have that interaction see the difference he says because black parents are teaching their children <laughs> don't be color colorblind you be colorful you're black and that means you've got lots of different you know interactions that you need to be aware of and you need to know how to govern yourself with as opposed to you know a white child you can imagine what the myriad of those are say so it's different as well that idea that shift of if you will reframing how races can interact from the colorblind to the colorful and that's in some ways would be more respectful is I think a, a really interesting way that helps us understand and cl clarify the importance of mental models. Mm -hmm. What I find fascinating as I was reading through your book, uh, I, I want to kind of come back to the bridge to the big data book. There is a sense that I experience that people sometimes think everybody's anxious, the world's very uncertain, so big data is sort of the thing that can make us all feel calmer. Or the economist who pretends to be able to see the future, even though he can't, which we might call a demagogue, is reassuring until his false projections are unmasked. What I'm getting at is that, in your book really gets into this, emotion is very present here. The yearning for certainty can, what you might call, make you susceptible to mirages. You said in this, just the last portion of this conversation, the pain of looking in what you called colorful can create an aversion where people block out the, the discomfort. They don't want to grapple with it. And then they simplify in a way that what you might call abstraction enables cruelty. But so I'm looking at a book, and I think I remember, yeah, I read this, Will I Am, the musician and entrepreneur gave you an endorsement. He said, a great book filled with fresh perspective to help us during the rise of AI so we can usher in the age of humanity. So I'm back at the inspiration out of big data and into this realm, the role of radical uncertainty and the role of emotion. Exactly. So it is strange. Like, what is he talking about? Why is Will I Am endorsing our book? And why is he talking about the age of humanity and the age of AI? And the reason why is that we start from talking about AI from and take as a given 
that AI will be as transformative and as positive and beneficial as we want it to be. So we're the optimists of AI, we're not the naysayers of AI. However, we believe that that's not where the focus needs to be. It's because AI, can, although it can do great things for us, and we hope that it does, can't do something very fundamental that humans can do, and that's frame. That is to say, generate mental models, apply mental models, and reinvent new mental models if the old models don't work. And the reason why is because the very components that make a frame useful are the very things that artificial intelligence cannot do. In particular, causality. AI has no understanding of it. Humans are extremely good at it. In fact, you might even say that the flaw of humans is that we're so good at it, we even see causality where it doesn't really exist. We project it. But that's not such a bad thing in and of itself. And the reason why is, is because it presumes that the world is an understandable place, it's a predictable place, and a repeatable place, and that with our intellect, we can understand some of these features of it and then take a causal template of how the world works and apply it to other circumstances. So we can make abstractions based on that causality. The second thing, and, and of course, artificial intelligence cannot do that. In fact, if you make one small adjustment, here's an example, if you were to play chess and you were to um, take away some squares that just couldn't be played, the computer would fall down completely where the human being would simply adapt. And the reason why is we can we have a, a frame of the game of chess and, and with that model we can easily adapt it and change it and, and, and make small little side cuts to it and still apply it. In another way of thinking of, the, of a causal frame is I see butter melting on a stove. I now can tell you all about what might happen if I put zinc in a furnace. Right? Artificial intelligence simply cannot do that because it cannot make abstractions, it can't generalize, and it can't take that representation and apply it to something new. It has to relearn it all, like, a, like an animal has to relearn everything from scratch again. Second thing is counterfactuals. Right? It's to say a counterfactual is a what-if question. It's not the world that is, it's the world that could be. The whole point of artificial intelligence, the, the best technique that we have of deep learning, but also the others like reinforcement learning and others, is that it learns from a large body of data. It needs actually gargantuan amounts of data to learn to overcome the fact that it can't render abstractions. The point about human beings is that we don't have the information, we invent it, because we can actually use our counterfactual thinking to imagine a world that isn't, to come up with data that we don't have or experiences that we haven't observed and make decisions based on it. So for example, how do you go to the moon? If How do you relight an engine in, in the middle of space in which there's no atmosphere, there's no oxygen? Well, we did that not because we'd ever done it before, we didn't experiment, we could do experiments on Earth, but the point is that before we experiment on Earth, we come up with a mental model and then we render it. And then the third is the constraints. We impose constraints, the meaningful and the right constraints that are right for the time in the given circumstances. And we're not great at it, but we're pretty good at it. And because of that, we can do things well. We, some, we as humanity sometimes flounder, but often as humanity, we exceed ourselves and do great things. A computer can give you counterfactuals and constraints. Oh, yes, it can. It can give you half a trillion of them in 30 seconds, right? But the point is, it can't give you the meaningful ones in time. So for that reason, although we're optimistic about artificial intelligence, we are also vaunting this human capability of framing. And this is coming at the time where on one side we have what we'll call the hyper-rationalists, the you know, people in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, who say human beings have such problems with their decision-making because of their cognitive biases, because the data is biased, that in fact what we need to do, well, we'll leave the data biased for a moment. Let me put that aside. Because human, human decision-making is biased and has limitations in it, that what we need to do is hand off some of these decisions to the machine to make it fairer, to make it better, such as you know, um, loan applications that don't rely on, on, a, on a white loan officer judging a black applicant, but can simply just look at the data. Now, there are ways in which that's the right answer, but in extremists, it's the wrong answer because you want human beings who have mental models to it. On the other side, are the emotionalists, as you said, and the emotionalists are the populists. They're almost like Rousseauian man who, who don't want reflection, rationality, Cartesian facts, and logic because it's inauthentic. What we want is the soul's expression of itself
face the universe. And this is the world of Bolsonaro and Trump and, and maybe Boris Johnson in Britain, if you're going to be ungenerous, as one should be, and say that this is the world in which, you know, that the, 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 the instincts of, of, of one's humanity is the legitimacy that one needs to make decisions. So you can shake people's hands at a COVID hospital and lo and behold, you're on a, on a ventilator three weeks later. That you could, that, that's, so we wanted something that would sit in the middle of that to say the hyper-rationalists don't have the answer. It's not a world of ice cold algorithms, nor should it be. The emotionalists don't have an answer. We, we shouldn't rely on populist simplifications to a complex world. Instead, what we need to do is understand our unique ability as human beings to become good framers, to get better at working within a frame or reframing when we need to in order to solve our problems. Yeah. You know, in my own life, uh, after finance, I've worked, uh, finance and politics, I worked in the music and film realm for a while. And a lot of my friends who come and watch things at INET from that realm say to me, what are you doing with all these experts? They're more emotionless. And what they say is, I said, well, you know, both left and right brains are necessary or what have you as uh, analogies. But they come back to me and it's not that they don't think that the right brain, or excuse me, that they think the right brain is superior because it's heartfelt. It's they think that experts are not doing analysis. They're doing marketing for power. And when they're doing marketing for power, they are becoming cold-hearted and personally ambitious and not providing for the public good. This I hear this over and over from people that work, particularly in film, uh, that the, uh, which you might call the heart-minded, what you call the emotionalists, are anchored to a more loving, if you will, process, and the cold analysis is subject to corruption. I don't, I think that's a too, too simplistic, and you've kind of created both the yin and the yang here on both sides of this, but, but it is what I hear in criticism of economics quite a lot. I, I don't totally disagree with it, um, and I think a part of it is the message, part of it is the ground truth, part of it is the messaging. Um, I think that, let me take a step back and uh, speak from personal experience. When TED came around, I was an early sort of uh, TEDster. I was an early sort of adherent to TED, um, but in a but not in the way that I think a lot of people would have liked because I was I thought I was I was so angry at it and repugnant. Now there was TED before Chris Anderson in the '90s, of, of which it was a small little sort of sect of interesting people doing extraordinary things and paying a lot of money to do it. And then it got sold, of course, um, to Chris Anderson, and then became they then put their videos online, and I I really disliked it at the outset because it was sort of like pop academia. It was taking what I thought at the time, some of the most scintillating minds on planet Earth and forcing them to speak in 15 minutes about their expertise in a way that I thought was, that did violence to it because it was, so, it was such a simplification. I thought the talks actually were pretty good, but what I really disliked was the chatter afterwards amid the coffees by people who thought they knew all about particle physics because they heard a 15-minute TED talk and that they had therefore license to challenge one of the world's foremost physicists about his ideas because they clearly understood the alpha and omega of it because they sat for 15 minutes uninterrupted, not texting on their phone. Hated it. And I've gone 180 degrees. I've actually, I think that actually is, they've done a brilliant job because they've done I think there is a great value in the crystallization of ideas by great minds, absolutely. But the second thing that they've done, which is, which is just as important, maybe more important, is that they meld at their best the analytical right hemisphere with the creative emotional left hemisphere. And suddenly, it, I think the ideas stick better. It's a great way of communicating. In fact, it's so important that one of the things I do at The Economist is I run, in effect, the op-ed page, if you will, it's something called By Invitation. And I get our contributors not to simply write their ideas, novel ideas, big ideas, but to I say, tell me, why is it that you're writing it? Like, tell me, what's your story in this? Why you? Give me your credibility. Say, I want to hear about the first person, what you have done, right? And I, want, I also want to find a little emotional levers because The Economist is so analytical 
And we're accused of being dry. I don't think we're dry whatsoever. I think we're scintillating. However, we're accused of being dry because we are so rational and analytical that I want to use this technique of bringing in emotion and finding a balance, balance to it and getting these ideas to stick. And if we can do that successfully, we can have more of an impact in the world. And it's about having an impact. So I, I agree with those people who criticize economics and even some of the economists, as Julian Benda called it in the 1930s, uh, the treason of the clerks, like the, cheap, the treason of the scholars, um, who, exactly, who, who have sort of given up on their integrity. In that case, it was about playing a role in policy and leading the world of ideas. But what, if Julian Benda was alive today, he would point to is scholars who are giving talks at Goldman Sachs for, you know, for six-figure speaking fees and giving up on their integrity of, of having influence in the world but being unblemished with lucre. The, the rise of Trump was in part because you could look at the sort of the governing class, the elites, for lack of a better term, in American politics, and he was able to say, hey, they're all on the tape. And they didn't have a response to that. Uh, I think that's too bad because I've got nothing against, you know, you know, talks at to investment banks. In fact, I think the world's a better place if you have these porous ideas that go from academia to investors and vice versa. In fact, I, the point about the book is ultimately reinterpreting liberalism through the lens of cognitive science and arriving at pluralism, but a cognitive pluralism. And pluralism does not mean that we, it's not that we all agree with something that we're all open-minded. It's that we can allow differences and different ideas to clash. And in that tension, we can funnel and challenge that, channel that tension productively to arrive at a better place. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I, I always tell people, they say, what is INET supposed to do? I said, foment critical discourse. We don't have a vision of that. We try to create that pluralistic, get everybody on stage, nobody shut out open up the journals a little bit to foster that kind of pluralism. I'll also mention a book that I've mentioned several podcasts recently. It's called The Recovery of Confidence. And John W. Gardner, uh, who, by the way, Chris Anderson's wife was mentored by John W. Gardner, uh, Jacqueline Novogratz, and who's been a guest on this podcast. But Gardner talked about the need to foster that discourse and that tension to create credibility and ultimate trust in governance. And he was writing after the period of the riots in the 60s. He had been the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. And then with Dr. King's murder, Bobby Kennedy's murder, the 68 conventions and all of that turbulence, he was writing about what I might call the healing the healing of a republic that was in despair. He went right to the place you did. The other thing I remember as I was listening to you, I was reminded, uh, I used to, well, I have a home in Northern California, and I knew a lot of the people around that early TED group. But what triggered me was uh, when my children were in preschool, I heard Sir Kenneth Robinson speak, and I read his book, which is called Out of Our Minds, that, that one in particular. And it was about the process of education, which had originally, looking at Britain, which was where he hailed from originally, uh, was about, how do I say, working on the production line. But now the value added was knowledge-intensive creativity, and it required a whole different set of skills. And uh, he told many stories in what, for I don't know what the ranking is in all time, for, for many years that was the number one most watched TED Talk that I, I synthesized left and right and brought all these different dimensions together in the spirit of illuminating where we need to go in education. And that is exactly right. Uh, uh, Sir Ken Robinson uh, was a remarkable man. Sadly, the late Sir Ken Robinson, because he passed away about 12 months ago. Um, and he, and, and I think everyone uh, is touched by his uh, famous account of the young girl who who formal education is willing to give up on. And, you know, one psychologist says, no, 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 listen to this, plays the music, leaves the room, and looks in through the window and says she's a dancer, right? Um, and it, it is beautiful. One thing that I think he didn't explore, but, um, but, it might, but I think a lot of people today 
would immediately think about and say, Joe, what are, she sounds cognitive atypical. She seems cognitive diverse. You know, maybe she was autistic. Um, and that that would explain why it was difficult for her to sit still in class, but why when music played, she could do something with her body that was just transformative and touched people in a way that they couldn't imagine being touched. The, I like the idea of a world in which we see cognitive diversity um, and, partic and particularly, I should say, neurodiversity as a, as a feature that we can learn from and become a better society from. Uh, in the book, we don't discuss that, but what we do talk about is the role of education and the role it can play for helping people to frame. Now, if I mentioned what framing was, this idea of generating abstractions in a mental model of the world that we can apply, the revolution that's taking place right now is we can take this basic feature of cognition and take and turn it from an aspect of something that we do all the time to a tool we can deliberately use to improve how we mentally size up the world. And by framing things better or reframing when we must, that we can generate new alternatives, different alternatives, and therefore by increasing the range of choices make better decisions and therefore be get better outcomes in society. And so you think about this and you say, how would we do that in education? And so the first thing you, we could say is, well, we actually do do that. And one place that we talk about as a vignette is the case study method. So Harvard Business School introduced the case study method exactly 100 years ago this year. Uh, and the reason why is that there was a new dean at, at, at the business school who, of course, was a good Harvard man, but if it's the school had only been around for a decade, what that meant is he went to Harvard Law School. And so the Harvard Law School had created the case study method in the 1880s, for obvious reasons, the hint is in the name, legal cases, you study the cases. And so before that, legal education had been just memorization. This is the civil code, this is the criminal code, go yonder, Harvard boys and sing. Now what it was, was actually classroom discussion and debate of the cases, state the case. Professor Langdell used to say, you know, Christopher Langdell, now of course the famous, enshrined as the famous law school hall. So Donham was his name, the dean of Harvard Law School, says, well, we need cases here as well. So he gets a professor to write different representative cases of business. But what's interesting about the case study method at the outset was that they didn't want the answer. What they wanted were the students to conceptualize the problem. That's going to be important because you fast forward, you know, basically 90 years, 80 years. You look around by the, from the 80s to, the, to, to recently. The case study method in some ways is very good, teaching people different mental frames with which to apply, but also really bad because it presumes there's one answer. So Joel Podoldi, who was at Yale and became the youngest dean of Yale, this is about 10 years ago, uh, as, uh, in, by, by the time he was 40, was revitalizing the Yale School of Management by not teaching the case study method with one professor and one answer, but with multiple teachers, he called it team teaching, in which they could all sort of debate multiple frames, multiple ways of seeing the same problem. And the reason why it's so important is that when you have a frame, you know, you can literally put it through here and see different things, you have the same data, but the frame that you have gets you to see different alternatives and therefore different choices and therefore different outcomes. So the case study method, when taught in this way, leads to a more richer way of seeing the world and coming up with answers to problems. A guy this creative is not going to stay long at Yale, although he's being tipped for being a, uh, a potential university president. Steve Jobs, now another knocks on his door when his cancer sort of comes back from remission and tries to lure him to head up Apple University as successful, and now Joel Padoni runs Apple University, teaching this same sort of approach of multiple ways of seeing problems and the tension that's created and, and making that productive clash to Apple executives. Maybe it's one of the reasons why Apple is doing so well. In, uh, again, going back to my time in finance, there was a uh, famous economist who had been my teacher as an undergraduate at MIT named Rudiger Dornbusch. And he did some work with me and my colleagues, and he said to me one night, we were walking down the street, and he says, how is it that you guys get paid so much, and I was your teacher? And I said to him, I was being, you know, playful with him, and I said, Rudy, you are 
very valuable because you stretch the imagination, the range of things that we can imagine and consider. Our job is to pick the right model. And both are valuable, but I guess the market is putting more energy on what you might call the right model. Well, the reason I, I bring that up is there's a gentleman that you and I are both familiar with who I've known somewhat, not, not deeply, but uh, been inspired by named Peter Schwartz, who wrote a book called The Art of the Lawn View. And it was about, if you will, when you can't know the model, but it might come into focus, there are ways to exercise the mind, like Rudy Dornbush did for us, and stretch the imagination so that when something arrives, you're there ready and sensitive to perceive it and integrate it into the adaptation of your model. And I know he's worked in many different contexts with Shell Oil and with Salesforce, and uh, I've seen him at World Economic Forum and so forth. But I'm, I'm curious, because you've written about him in this book, how Peter Schwartz fits into the, the story that you're, Absolutely. you're illuminating. Peter's yeah, I'm so happy you asked that because Peter is such a remarkable fellow and I was really pleased, in fact, honored that I could write about him and his work. In fact, you could say that the, the history of my life has been trying to find ways to write about Peter Schwartz all throughout my career. And I've, I've done it many times in my career, but this one sort of caps it. And the reason why, in fact, it came out of a conversation we had at Davos in 2019 uh, in which we were talking about Minority Report. And he reminded me something that I'd known but I sort of had forgotten, which was that he was asked by Steven Spielberg, who was a childhood acquaintance of his, to create the setting of the film Minority Report. And so he tells me the story at the Salesforce Pavilion uh, amid snowy, snowy Switzerland uh, while we were gorging on chocolates. And, uh, and it was so captivating that I said, you know, Peter, when are you in London so we can sort of sit down and really thrash this out? And he said, oh, I'm going to be there next week, leaving Davos and headed, headed to Buckingham Palace. So there we were um, at the Economist headquarters in a, in a private room with the recorder between us. And so we did a podcast on this and as well as you know, the material for the book. And the story goes like this. So Peter Schwartz, people should know, was at Shell and was doing scenario planning. He was the guy who started thinking of a scenario in which oil prices spiked outside of its normal range. And of course, there was the oil crisis. He also had as one of their scenarios the idea that there would be the dissolution of the Soviet Union Everyone thought he was mad, he was crazy, he was ridiculous, he looked like sort of some, a Merlin, but, you know, but without any sort of non-Coppice Mentis. Soviet Union was, in fact, going to collapse soon thereafter, and he's now hailed as a genius, put forward. So the scenario plan was this. Uh, if you're going to create an imaginary world, you need to both think of it in terms of stretching your imagination and being creative of what would be and what is likely, but also live in a universe that's highly bounded by, the, by constraints and in particular by continuity. And getting that balance right is very, very difficult. And sometimes you have to fail because of creative reasons. So the first thing that you're doing is you're looking at the setting. The, the Minority Report by Philip K. Dick is only several pages long, so there is no setting there. So he has to create a world of what's going to be 2050. And all the set designers want these, want these sets of Albert Speer-like black granite buildings of Ministry of Fear that are 80 feet tall and there's no humans around except these small diminutive beings in, amid just this barren landscape of, of dark marble. And <laughs> he says, no, no, that's not going to work. He says, it's a national capital. It's Washington, D.C. National capitals are preserved. They're not just raised to the ground and built anew. And they say, the designers say, what are you talking about? This, why should that matter? This is the future, isn't it? And so all of the other geeks that were invited to like a three-day idea summit at the Shutters Hotel in Santa Monica just also jeered at the set designers and said, no, 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 don't you understand? A city has time depth, time depth. There's buildings and structures that were created hundreds of years ago, and there's buildings and structures that were created just two or three years ago, and they all have to coexist. So if you will, that was one of the areas in which you had to have consistency. And one of the great things about the film Minority Report is at the very beginning, you see Tom Cruise and others descend down in jetpacks, and where do they land? wood frame and brick buildings in Georgetown in a playground. So it was that juxtaposition of the hyper-modern, the hyper-future in the setting of something that felt very familiar. 
that was so essential that they did that. And it was because they were sort of in a world that was with their counterfactuals that were constrained and were consistent. Now, where they had to break it is uh, Schwartz does a beautiful job of recounting it to me. Steven Spielberg says, I got to have jetpacks. And Peter Schwartz says, Steven, <laughs> the physics is not going to give you jetpacks. And Steven Spielberg says, Steven, <laughs> in my film, my cops are going to have jetpacks. And Steven Schwartz says, if you're Steven Spielberg, your cops get jetpacks. The other thing was uh, the, the car, and that beautiful car that's now vertical and zipping around at you know, tens of thousands of miles an hour. Th there was a problem, and that was there needed to be a dashboard. And all the geeks said, well, it's going to be self-driving. And Steven Spielberg said, well, I still need a dashboard. They said, but it's going to be voice activated. And Steven Spielberg said, I still need a dashboard. And they said, why do you need a dashboard if, you, if it's self-driving and is voice activated? And he said, because I'm making a film. I need some place for the character to look, and I need some place for the camera to point. And so hence, you have, you know, you had to break the, that, that sort of continuity and that counterfactual. But those are the, the ways in which, if you were having a frame, which was the point of the, the vignette of, of, of Steven Spielberg, is important that, that, that when you are reframing, that you can actually play with counterfactuals, but they have to be consistently done. Well, coming back, I'm uh, how to say moving towards the latter parts of your book, I was reminded as I was reading the last chapter about a very human episode. Some people I know well were consulting with a Silicon Valley firm about their workforce, racial diversity, gender diversity, and what have you. At the time when this firm was creating AI algorithms to monitor people and detect who might become a criminal. So it was what you might call an early warning system designed to protect society by catching ahead of the curve who should be watched. So we go in the old Westerns, head them off at the pass so the crime never gets committed, the injury never is incurred. But what happened was that this wasn't a human improvisational thing. This was a database created by white people. And in the algorithm, all kinds of probably unconscious, not mean intent, but unconscious triggers. When the algorithm was tried, it encouraged law enforcement agencies to essentially hound and track black people. And what was interesting was my friends who were working on this could see the demoralization of the black employees and they were considering leaving and they were, you know, very vocal to these consultants. And the response was to actually have those people join the design team to inject that broader sensitivity and humanity. So you're not, I'm trying to relate to your book, you're not giving up the value of AI, but you're humanizing the AI in a way that makes it serve mankind better. And I thought it was a fantastic experience. And as I, your last chapter, I think it's called Vigilance. Let, let, jump off from there and tell me a little bit about what is your recommendation to all of us in light, you know, at the pinnacle of this book in that realm. Yeah. So it, that's a beautiful story that you shared. And I think that is also shows a lot of wise management, it shows a lot of patience and decency among the employees as well, because they could have, they could have left, uh, they could have petitioned management to, to, to discontinue doing this. I think both of those answers would have been insufficient, although I can appreciate why people would embrace them. Far better is to engage and to say, okay, this is a problem. How can we fix this? What would be the solution? How, what role can I play? And as you pointed out, bringing them into the design team is exactly right. It brings their frame, their diverse way of looking at the world into the product design and therefore into the outcome that's going to be driven from it. Because of course, the question is, well, what was wrong in it? And we should be sort of um, very sort of distilling in terms of where the problem is. 
was the problem that we were actually trying to apply an algorithm to make a prediction of crime. Maybe not, because of course we really want to use algorithms to predict things like cancer, just as Amazon likes to have algorithms predict what we're going to purchase. So and we become, it's a lot easier for us to find new books or to listen to music if we've got these predictive algorithms. So that's not the problem. Was it the algorithm itself? In fact, you had said, oh, the, 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 there was a problem with the, a bias in the algorithm, but I think that was a shorthand that you said, and I think if you, you thought about it and rewound, you'd say, well, that's not really the problem per se. The algorithm wasn't biased. The algorithm is just the algorithm. In fact, the algorithm is just simply the, the mathematical representation of a formula um, that might probably be changed based on the data itself, as these algorithms are, but it's not the fault of the algorithm. The algorithm is fine. The flaw is in the model, and the model that the algorithm generated was flawed because of something else, and that was the underlying data. That the data has an information quotient to it. Data is a representation of something that's informational. It is always a mirror to the ground truth. It's not the thing itself. It is the abstraction of the thing itself in the same way that the map is not territory. So if the data itself the information quotient of the data is somehow wrong and therefore and biased because there's an implicit bias in society. For example, if you did it on arrest records, right, bookings, or better yet, even convictions, I mean, it would be completely wildly different. A conviction doesn't say that somebody did a crime, and uh, it does say that somebody did a crime, got caught, went through the judicial system, and got a sentence, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of chains of causality in that, right? It's because, of course, if you have a really good defense lawyer, right, or you're the sort of person who, for whatever reason, can talk your way out of getting brought to the station on the, at the first instance, you're not even going to get to that last stage. People who don't have a lot of resources and might have the wrong color skin are going to get convicted, as we know from the data, at a great, much higher rate than other classes, whether you're wealthy or whether you're white. You wouldn't get to that point. Right? So the point is that the data itself was biased in some way, and therefore, when it generated the model, the model recreated that bias that was seen in society. So what do we do about that? So the idea of having a predictive algorithm that could sort of identify where crime is might be a really valuable tool when police forces are stretched and they need to focus their fire on where the resources are best put to keep our community safe. And that's something that we should all sign up for. I mean, it sounds like a very reasonable thing. I mean, everyone has an interest in public safety as long as it's done well under the rule of law and, and the constraints that are put on our guardians in our community. You know, we, it's a, a never-ending battle. However, the idea of bringing those people in is really important. And so what we, where we end the book Framers is the idea of vigilance that we need to be masters of this technology, not our servants, that we need to embrace artificial intelligence, but we also need to embrace our humanity and impose our frames on it and direct it where it goes. At the same time, we need to live together and work together, but it's not simply about cooperation. That's the Yuval Harari story in which we all need to cooperate, we all need to see, get on the same page and see things the same way. And that is not what we are saying. We don't need this homogeneity and uniformity of thought. Right? Though we lock arms as brothers and sisters of our shared human experience and march into our future. Let us accept our differences. Let us accept the fact that you frame things differently than I frame things. And we should allow <clears throat> this furnishing, this flourishing of multiplicity of frames, provided that your frame does not invalidate or try to deny the existence of my frame. That is the sort of the red line that we, that we invoke, like Karl Popper's paradox of intolerance that we can't broach. But barring that, the fact that we don't see things eye to eye, the fact that you interpret the world differently than I do, is not a drawback. It's actually a feature of our world. And the only way we're going to solve our global problems together is if we can accept each other's mutual frames and try to find in good faith a way to accommodate them so that we can solve our problems and integrate them for better decision making. I want to I want to pick that up and uh, go to a place that when you and I chatted for a few minutes before is the uh, relationship between the United States and China. The story I tell is that I believe it was in 2010, Zbigniew Brzezinski gave a speech 
I believe in Montreal, to the Council on Foreign Relations meeting there. And he said, the great financial crisis has unmasked a failure in governance and the, what you might call, uh, unfairness of some of the bailouts, particularly in the United States, where people like Joseph Stiglitz said the polluters got paid. Uh, he said, it's heightened everyone's awareness to politics, and the growth of the internet facilitates that. He said, but now, with everybody having suspicion, discord, and heightened awareness, we move from a G7 world, which we might call a white Judeo-Christian advanced country governance, to a G20 world, where Eastern philosophy and Cartesian enlightenment thinking are both at the head table, and how they decide together what to do to restore order and confidence is an overwhelming challenge. Well, you and I talked a little bit about your work with Chatham House and work that I've done. We've got climate change on the horizon. We've got a world to manage when we've just been through a very stressful chapter that I would say Donald Trump accelerated, but if you go back and look at the reports of the Council on Foreign Relations, the polarity vis-a-vis -vis China was building in evidence, in reports by gentlemen like Mr. Blackwill and others in 2014. So this clash that Orville Schell wrote about in his book, Wealth and Power, is coming up. You're talking about people having different deep-seated ways of perceiving, different what I call models in their mind, but we need a model together. In light of your book, in light of the challenges between the United States and China and the necessity of collaboration, what do you recommend? How do we go, how do we move forward? Well, you said we need a, we need to sort of see a model together. Uh, we need to sort of a, a shared sense of purpose. Uh, I would question that to some degree. I think we need uh, a model that suggests mutual coexistence, but I don't think we need actual agreement. It would be nice if we could agree on fundamental questions of um, decentralization of power, of uh, the role of the private sector, of um, territory and, uh, and, and diplomacy and interactions with, with neighbors. But it's not certain that we're gonna get that. Uh, as you mentioned, I am on the board of directors of Chatham House, and one of the things we do talk about is, well, what is our role, our purpose? We were founded 101 years ago in the ashes of World War I, and the purpose was to fuse a declining Britain to a rising America. The Council of Foreign Relations, which I'm also a member of, was founded at the same dinner in Paris at the Majestic Hotel in, 2019, in, in 1919, and so, and of course, created in, in, in 1920. So, when you think about it, we have these two great institutions that have to play a role. At Chatham House, what we want to do is we want to be an interlocutor to both sides, to be a trusted intermediary. Not to say that we don't have our own values and our views, but that we want to play a cautious role. Or I, actually, I have to speak for myself because I don't speak for the, the organization, but I advocate. I'm a, I'm a militant for, pass, for passivism, for if you will. And I advocate that we play this role as an interlocutor for the purpose of peace. I think that peace is very fragile. I think uh, we haven't had uh, an existentially serious conflict in our lifetimes. And as a result, we forget the ease with which violence can erupt and the terror with which it can sweep through very quickly. And all we have to do is remember that in 1939, Polish forces you know, went to the front in cavalry on horseback and, by, and, four, and six years later, you know, the Enola Gay would drop an atomic bomb on Japan to see the, the speed with which, you know, military thinking can, can go far beyond the mental models that we are in. So I'm very nervous about uh, the risks of the, the international community to global order and to global peace and feel it's very important that we find a way to accommodate that and to live together. I think framing can play an important role in that by accepting the fact that you can have your frame and I can have my frame and that together 
as long as we have good faith that we accept each other's legitimacy, cognitive and even existential legitimacy of being and sizing up the world and seeing it through this simulation and mental model, which is what the brain does, that we can actually come together and then work in the areas and solve the problems together where we can find common ground and work. And that might be in the environment and it might be in other sort of classical areas, counterterrorism, responding to a pandemic, while we also will acknowledge that we see things fundamentally different in other ways. And we're going to have to accept that and we're going to have to live together on this planet. I think the, the problem is that when one frame tries to dominate another, that's going to create a tension that, that it's just harder to put the genie back into the bottle after she explodes out in ways uh, that we can't control. So I, I feel very passionately that that is one of the essential risks of our time. And it's important that we have the, the sort of a, a wisdom that is rare in politics and in foreign policy and in, the, and in the public sphere to embrace these differences and, and strive for a pluralism of frames. It's interesting. Uh, <clears throat> I recently met a gentleman who goes by the name Patrick Lawrence. And he wrote a book that I read in preparation called Somebody Else's Century. And it was a prediction. I think he wrote the book in about 2011 about how the United States was not going to be able to impose its framework. And this is a man who'd lived, he'd written books about Japan. He was a, a friend of Chalmers Johnson who wrote many books on Japan as well as uh, about American military, uh, blowback, nemesis, and what have you, a uh, book about Miti. And, but anyway, Patrick and I talked, and, and this idea was, whether it was in China or Japan or Korea, people from Eastern philosophy really do question, are these the things I want? Are the things that they're talking about as their success? I'm not sure those are success from the way I see the world. And I guess what I'm saying is from reading his book, I came with a deepening conviction that there is a challenge here and there is a confusion or a, a need for mutual respect so that those two models, those two different frames can continue to evolve in a constructive direction. When Lee Kuan Yew in the 90s came up with his idea of Asian values, he got derided by people in the West. And... Uh, and I think there was a, it, it, there was an irony in him putting it forward because he was he played a role that was on the surface extraordinarily democratic and behind it extremely non-democratic. But I, I lived for five years in Japan as the Tokyo correspondent during the period of Fukushima, among others, and I was struck by the degree to which the Japanese, as a culture, size up the the world so differently. In particular. Um, the classic role of shareholders and shareholder rights and what is the value of a company and and the obligations of a company to its employees and vice versa. And that's helped color how I see uh, the world that sort of led to the book Framers because you can't say that one is right or wrong. It's simply right a, a good fit for a given situation. One frame might be the legitimate frame whereas in a given situation, whereas not in another. So even the flat earth frame is legitimate if what you want to do is measure a piece of furniture in your house, or if you're going to go and drive from here to the pharmacy down the street several miles away, you don't really need to account for the curvature of the earth. But of course, if you want to send a rocket, a Saturn rocket thundering off out of the earth's atmosphere to land into the, onto the moon, of course, you're going to need not the flat earth frame, but sort of a round earth. And that's the purpose of what a frame is in the same way that Google Earth has all the information, but you don't need it to drive from one place to another. Google Map, which separates all that information, sort of is, is a much narrower frame, actually serves your function well. So by that same token, the frames that we have, whether it's a Japanese frame of, of shareholder rights, the American frame of sort of a, a, a hurly-burly capitalism, a Chinese frame that um, that is nervous and uncomfortable with disruption and, dist and decentralization, 
we can we should have a sort of tolerance in, of the pluralism of frames and not try to accept, aspire to a homogenization of frames where we have to see things the same way because practically we're not going to we're different people in different settings with different with different values um, as long as this sort of central value of accepting each other's frame as legitimate and therefore us as legitimate entities in the world then we can actually coexist and and solve the problems where we can find agreement well can I know you uh... You host your own uh, podcast called Babbage, and uh, this book, you know, people often ask me, when you run a podcast, how do you figure out who should be the guests? And I said, I look for the people who address the most important questions. Now, that has something to do with what I sense are the most important questions, but sometimes the person catches my fancy when I didn't see it coming. But I want to say, in preparing for this and studying your work and so forth, that I want myself and others to start to follow your podcast, to follow your book, because you do seem to choose very important questions related to society's challenges, the means of addressing it. You integrate them well, you and your co-authors, and uh, I, I, really, I really admire what you're doing. So thank you for being my guest today. Thank you for sharing with our audience, and I look forward to both listening to you on your podcast and perhaps creating another chapter somewhere down the road together. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate that, and it was an incredible honor uh, to join you today. Um, of course, I know I'm Adam. I'm, Adam. I'm on your website all the time, and I'm a, a great fan of Bill Janeway, among others. He's sort of a, a mentor to me. And in fact, if you if you look in the acknowledgments, it was I was very proud that I actually could put him in the book in the acknowledgments uh, because he is such a an influence on me. But all of the work that you're doing is brilliant, and so thank you very much. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. I hope so. Good. Thank you. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing